Well, Christian Fellowship Church, it's exciting to continue through the book of Revelation. Uh, I hope it's been uh, rewarding for you as it has been for me. And oftentimes we uh, you know, may be challenged to see things a little bit differently. We haven't really gotten into many of the sort of weird, mysterious beastly images of Revelation first because we're taking our time in those seven letters to the seven churches. Very practically speaking, they are uh, about churches that are in need of uh, survival reminders, survival tips uh, for, for strength, for the journey. And then other churches need to be corrected. And as we take one church at a time, we see ourselves and many of these messages, and I hope that's uh, what we'll see today is what the Lord is saying to us today through the message to the church at Sardis. So turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, and while you do that, I'm going to begin us with a word of prayer. Father, as we approach you through your word, we pray that you would use your word to enliven us, give us just what we need, Father, to be kind of church that is ready for your return. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It still pains me as you drive around, as I drive around, and I see businesses that are closed, and you're like, ah, there's another one that didn't survive uh, the COVID restrictions. And maybe not all closures were directly due to COVID, but there were so many interrelated things happening at the same time that many businesses couldn't survive. It's like businesses are built for sort of a a baseline of normalcy. And when that normalcy disappears and catastrophe hits for a long time, some businesses don't make it. A Chicago Tribune article from March 2021 simply read this in the headline, Chicago lost 300... These not only these, but Chicago lost these 361 businesses during pandemic. See what closed in your neighborhood. That's sad. Some of those may be your favorite spots. Some of them are surprising. Oh my goodness, that was a, a pretty big chain. That didn't, didn't make it. But there are churches all over that are closing as well. And I don't mean closing their doors necessarily. Because a church can be shut down, but still open. That's some of the irony that you see in these letters to the seven churches in the beginning of Revelation, is that some churches, the doors are open. They're open for business, so to speak. You can come and sit. There's music. There's somebody preaching. They're going to give a sermon. They, they have communion. But they're, they're shut down. Uh, to use Jesus' words, as we'll see in a moment, they're dead they're dead. Some churches you walk in and you're like, yeah, it's, it's kind of a dead church because you're not greeted. The people kind of walk around. They're all mopey. They're just waiting to die. They haven't handed anything to a next generation. Nobody new is coming in. They're not having baptisms. They're not discipling. They're not evangelizing. They're just coasting on the budget of yesteryear until there's nobody left. And you look around and you go, okay, maybe there's not any egregious sins going on, but they're kind of dead. However, there are churches you walk into and they look alive. 
the music is vibrant, the band is big, the budget is huge, the parking, you can hardly find any, they've got to open up new campuses, right? The, 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 the pastor brings energetic sermons. They... But that doesn't mean they're alive. That's sort of the invisibility to this whole thing, that we can be duped by exterior things, that make it look successful, just like that business that you thought was thriving, that business that you, they just hired all these employees. I thought they were in a place of strength and they couldn't handle the pandemic. Jesus is like, hey, tribulation is coming. Can you handle it? Because being a huge church that looks alive, even having a reputation of being alive, when when somebody asks, what church do you go to? And you say your church and they might be like, never heard of it. Okay, but some churches you say it and they're like, oh yeah, I watched that guy's YouTube. I've bought that pastor's books. Oh yeah, my cousin got saved there. It's a well-known church. People know that church. When people come to Chicago, they might go to that church because going to Chicago, this is one of those churches you want to visit because that pastor is there or that ministry is there or that worship team is there. They seem alive and they seem vibrant. And they may not be. Churches can look alive and actually be dead. Take a look at this message to the church in Sardis. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, this is Jesus commanding John to deliver this message. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Oh, man. Some of these other letters are like, hey, good stuff here. Work on this stuff over there. This one's like, hey, I know you enjoy this reputation of being alive, but you're dead, actually. Not a great, not a great start to their letter. I don't know if they got to hear some of the other letters, and they're like, oh, I wonder what ours is going to start like. Not great. Right out of the gate. It's no good. So they have this reputation for being alive. Again, notice that he begins every single message by reminding them, who's in charge here? The underlying current to the letter to all these seven churches is, even the ones, there's two of these seven that don't get any negative feedback. And even those, he reminds them, hey, I'm in charge. Why? Because if you're going to continue doing well, if you're going to continue thriving, and surviving even attacks from outside or from within the congregation even sometimes, you're only going to endure and survive if I am the life of your church. And then here, what he picks out of that vision, that controlling vision from chapter 1, he says, he reminds them that these words that you're hearing are from Jesus Christ who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I'm going to unpack that a little bit. A, because these symbols can be confusing, and B, because I think it's precisely the point. What is the life of a church? Well, as he talks about these seven, of course, he's writing to these seven churches. These churches are the seven stars. What's going on with the seven spirits? We heard about the seven lampstands. I told you the lampstands and the stars is really the same imagery. Those are the churches, seven actual churches that are getting these letters. What are the seven spirits of God? I touched on it briefly before. I want to unpack it a little bit more now, and it might be new to you. Just give me a chance, all right, to, to drive this home. And some of it you might have to rewind later and watch. But I don't want to spend 
too much time here, but I think those seven spirits are the Holy Spirit. I don't think there are seven Holy Spirits. I think the number seven is symbolic of perfection, and he's the perfect Holy Spirit. Where am I getting this from? Well, Jesus holds the stars. You might say, he says, Jesus holds the stars. Uh, Jesus holds the lamps. Jesus is the center of the church. Is not the Holy Spirit. But Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. Do you remember that? When he tells the disciples, I have to ascend, because if I don't ascend, I don't send you the Holy Spirit. And trust me, that's better. He literally told them, better than me physically walking around on this earth is the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to ascend and send you the Holy Spirit uh, Peter and Paul both refer, referred to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. I'm not sure if you've ever realized that. It's not often that the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ, but the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. That doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is Jesus Christ, but in the interworking of the Trinity, it's not like God the Father sometimes sends the Son over here, and you know what? Pull back, the Holy Spirit's better suited over here. He sends the Son, and together they send the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit is the center of this whole thing. I think that's what he's getting here. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, the seven spirits are put on par with the Father and the Son. You can look at it real quick because you're not far from it. This is back in chapter 1, verse 4. The seven spirits and the Father and the Son are put on the same tier. So it can't be seven angels because the Bible never takes angels and puts them up here on par with the Trinity, right? But if it's the sevenfold Holy Spirit, yeah, that makes sense that he's on par with Jesus Christ in that way. You see this again in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. You see it in Revelation 4, verse 5. John is connecting it to, Revel, uh, to Zechariah 4. In Zechariah 4, the seven spirits are the Lord's seven eyes that range throughout the earth. And hopefully, none of you read Zechariah like, God has seven eyes, actually. I've been drawing him wrong, you know. Um, don't draw God, first of all, and that's one of the reasons why. He doesn't have seven literal eyes. What do eyes do? They see. And as his eyes range throughout the earth, do they range through some of the earth? Do they only see some things? No, there's seven of them because it's perfect vision. And now John in Revelation 4, 5 and in 5, 6, he connects it to Zechariah 4 saying, hey, you know how the Lord's eyes range throughout the earth? The seven eyes, that's actually the sevenfold spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. God's presence in this earth doing the work. One more, I'll just throw one more. Isaiah eleven two. You can look it up later. Isaiah eleven two describes the spirit seven different ways. So there in Isaiah eleven two, you have a sevenfold uh, description of the Holy Spirit. So the best interpretation is not seven angels. The best interpretation is a sevenfold spirit, the perfect Holy Spirit. I wanted to give you all that so that you have it. Uh, we've seen this a couple times with the seven spirits, and we're going to see it again. I won't take all this time to explain it every time, so I'm getting out of the way now. All right. Now, the, why is that important? Because as he's writing to this church in Sardis, and he's going to talk about how they're dead, he's going to give them a chance to be, actually be alive, and the only way to be alive as a church is for the Holy Spirit to be thriving in the church. It's got to be a Holy Spirit church. Now, there's another place we get confused. What is a Holy Spirit church? If you ask somebody, if when you walk into a church, what are the top three signs that you know that church is alive, that it's a Spirit-filled church? What might they say? Excitement? energy somebody asked me one time what's the vibe of your church i was like what do you mean he's like every church has a vibe I was like i don't know man 
God's word? Is that a vibe? Can that be a vibe? We teach God's word. Can we do that? What does a Holy Spirit church look like? If the Spirit is the center of the church, it's the center of the life in a church, as Jesus holds these seven stars, how is it focused on the presence of God through the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ? We know that the Holy Spirit indwells His people, right? You know that. The Holy Spirit indwells a true church, not the church building. The Holy Spirit doesn't indwell a church building. The Holy Spirit indwells the church people. The church people. So many verses on this. Just on your own, Google Holy Spirit indwelling. And you'll get all the verses you need. Google will give them to you, okay? But I'll just give you one. 2 Timothy 1.14. Paul says, the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Right? The Holy Spirit dwells in us, the people, not the building. So a church can have a building and be dead. A church can have a service with sermons and songs and attendance and be dead. The, the vitality has to come from within, inside the Christians, actually, right? Who the Christians are that claim to be the church. They need to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and that indwelling looks like something. But not every church that claims to have the Holy Spirit does. Not every church that claims to be alive is alive. And I say this with, with my heart broken to say it. I don't, I don't want CFC to be, the, and it's not. By far, we're not the only church that is worth attending, even in our immediate area. But, but there are churches that don't have life. Some of them might even look like they have life, and, and they don't. We see that in this letter to Sardis. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. I know what other people say about you. I know what your Google reviews say. But the truth is, my fiery eyes, my pure judgment know that actually you are dead. That's an indictment that's worth reckoning with. Thankfully, though, theirs is a kind of death where they can come back from it. There's hope. It's a kind of death where a turnaround is still possible. Look at the next verse. Wake up, or some translations say be alert or be watchful. Uh, I think most translations go with wake up, arouse from your sleep, and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So here's the good news, right? If a church is struggling, a church is dying, a church is dead on the vine, there is a way to make a comeback. And we know that because Jesus is saying, wake up. I mean, you, you can't wake up if you're actually dead. So what he's saying is, okay, when I said you're dead, that's a hyperbole, that's an exaggeration, okay, for, for arresting your attention. But the truth is, technically, a lot of you are dead, but some of you are still alive. There's still something there, and you can turn from it, and you can wake up, and you can change, and you can be the lively church you're supposed to be. It's kind of like uh, your, your favorite baseball team is getting blown out in, like, the sixth inning, and you're like, man, they're dead, right? They're dead. And someone next to you is like, but there's still a chance. You're like, it's 38 to 4. 
But even in circumstances where it does look impossible, technically speaking, it's not the ninth inning yet. And Jesus is saying, it's not the ninth inning yet. And I'm, I'm good at turnarounds. So it's not over for this church, and that's great. So by dead, really the church on the whole is really, really weak. They're really, really weak. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. So they're mostly dead, and the rest of it is on its way out. See? And pretty soon it will totally be dead. No light at all. The lampstand will just be not flickering anymore, just gone. But there is a chance before getting to that point of total, totally being lost and ending up in the morgue, while you're still in hospice, there's time to be turned around. This church is in hospice. They're on their way out, but they can come out of it. And notice that the contrast here is between their reputation among people and what they really are in the sight of God. So he's going, you're distracted, thinking yourself as healthy, and actually you're, you're not healthy. Okay? I've got the charts. I've got the x-ray. I've got the EKGs. Okay? It doesn't matter what you look like on the outside. You look like a supermodel, but I've got the interior aspect here. And uh, look what your lungs look like. You know, something like that. So he's calling them to change. He's calling them to wake up. He's only saying that because it's possible for them to do it. What they need to do is they need to do it. What is the problem? If you look closely, the problem is incomplete works. You see that there in verse 2. Wake up, strengthen what remains, and is about to die. So far, he's kind of in this realm of metaphor, right? Dying versus a dead church versus being alive, that kind of stuff. And then he just gets right to it. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. A couple things to point out. One, he doesn't say, I have not found any works at all. No, there's some. But I haven't found them complete. The problem is the incompletion of their works. It's kind of like if you were to buy a car, but you bought the car and you sign the paperwork, but you can't take delivery of it. They're like, because we don't have these essential parts yet. The wheels aren't here yet. You're not going to be like, well, keep the wheels and I'll drive it home for now. It's mine. I bought it. It's incomplete right? It's like when you're filling out a job application and there's certain fields with a red asterisk where you don't get to skip those. If it asks you your favorite pet, that might not have a red asterisk. If it asks you your last name, that's probably going to have a red asterisk and it won't send it unless those particular fields are complete. And Jesus is saying, I, I, can't, I can't accept you as a church. It's an incomplete field. You can't hit send yet. You can't hit submit yet because you haven't filled in these. You filled in some of them, but some of them with the red asterisk next to them, you haven't filled those in and your works are incomplete. So he's pointing out things that they're supposed to be doing that they haven't done yet. Here's another thing we need to understand. With some of these churches, he's going, hey, you got some good stuff here. And then here's some bad stuff you're doing. We've seen that, right? You're, you have sexual immorality going on. You've got idolatry going on. There are negative things that you're doing. The things that you're not supposed to be doing, you're doing those. This is different. He's not rebuking them for something negative. He's not rebuking them for doing things they're not supposed to do. He's rebuking them for not doing things they are supposed to do. Incomplete works, works that you should be doing that you're not doing. 
He's not saying you should be engaging in sexual immorality. Those are the other churches doing naughty things, right? Things they're not supposed to do. Now, one of the easiest ways, I think, for churches to get off kind of feeling like, hey, we're pretty good, is lack of scandal. We're not, we're not doing anything egregiously bad. We're not doing anything really in that category of wrong things to do. But Jesus, notice how Jesus isn't satisfied with that. What are the things that you are supposed to be doing? Okay. This is the difference between sins of commission and sins of omission. You may have heard of that before. And I think it's an important category. Because they're both sinful. A sin of commission is a bad thing that you do. And this is, wasn't this the plight of many of the religious people in the New Testament, like the Pharisees? It's like, look at all the things I don't do. Remember when Jesus compared the prayer of the Pharisees to the tax collector? He's like, look at this dude. I don't do all these things that he does. God, I'm so thankful. What a pompous prayer. I'm so thankful that I'm better than this guy. And I'm better than this guy because look at all the negative, the sins of commission that he does that I don't do. And Jesus is drawing Sardis, the church at Sardis, their attention, not to the sins of commission, the, the sins that you do, but the sins of omission, the right things we're supposed to be doing that we don't do. Those are a little bit harder to pin down. It's easy to go after a guy for cheating on his wife. It's harder to go after a guy for not loving his wife well. It's just harder to see, isn't it? That harder to weigh. You did or did not cheat on your wife. Did you love your wife well last week, brother? I mean, define love. See how it just immediately becomes harder to nail because it's a sin of omission. What are the good things you're doing as a husband? What are the good things you're doing as a wife toward your spouse? But just because it's harder to pin down doesn't mean Jesus leaves it off. Jesus isn't like, I know. Look, hey, you're not committing adultery like this other church. You're not idolaters like this other church with the buffoonery of Jezebel. So you guys are straight. Just hang on, and I'll be back soon. You're dead. Whoa. The church with the scandal and the pastor that runs off with one of the members' wives. They're like, yeah, that, that church must be dead. How about the church that just, they, they, they're together? No scandals? Nothing big, egregious? You know? It, the, the pastor's not a criminal? Great! <laughs> what, but what do we do as a church? And do we do everything that God wants us to do as a church? Because he doesn't just say, you don't have positive works. He's saying your works are not complete. Not in the sight of Facebook reviews, but in the sight of my God. What he sees as necessary to a healthy, vibrant church. You'll notice that uh, even though Jesus is focusing on positive traits and missing traits, he doesn't name them. That's a little frustrating, right? Jesus is perfect, and what he says is perfect. It's only frustrating because I'm a, I'm a sinner, right? And I, I just just give it to me plain. Just tell me the three things I'm supposed to do, or that we're supposed to do as a church. Check, 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 and we're ready for Christ's return. And he's he's not going to do it. He's not going to do it. You remember when Jesus told the disciples, "Hey, I'm going to ascend. What are you supposed to do as a church? You're going to go throughout the whole earth, baptizing people." 
And then what else? Teaching them to obey all I've commanded. Do you think the disciples were like, hold on, click. What were those commandments again? Read the Bible, is what he would say. Right? How do we know all that Jesus commanded? Is it just the New Testament? Remember what Jesus said about the Old Testament? He didn't throw it out. He raised the bar on the Old Testament. So from Genesis to Revelation, everything that we're taught to do, God expects us to do it. He expects us to do it. And he's not going to drop down an itemized list, a checklist for us to just go, okay, let me check off these things and feel safe. But if we just leave it there and we're like, yeah, let's just go do stuff and we don't really talk application, I think, you know, I think we need to have conversations about these things. This is why in recent years I've been emphasizing at least five things. You remember the sharp profile that I, that I rolled out a couple of years ago? Just five positive traits that we can hold on to. And here's what I was looking for. I was looking for things that are positive, not negative. In other words, I didn't want, um, uh, you know, the S in sharp to be sexual fidelity because that focuses on don't do naughty sexual things. I, I didn't want it to be a list of things that you're not supposed to do, which are essential. Those are essential things. There are things that God tells us not to do. But I want us to focus on things that, what are, what are we supposed to do? The positive things, the good things that we're supposed to focus on. And actually, I think as we focus on those positives, the negatives kind of take care of themselves. If I'm loving my wife appropriately, I'm not going to step out of line over here. And so it's not just controlling yourself and not clicking on stuff you're not supposed to click on, but focusing and training your attention on the Lord Jesus Christ. In that sharp profile... I wanted positive things, and I wanted things that, hey, you can't debate this stuff. I'm not going to say, hey, you've got to, um, you know, I don't know, give money to an organization this many times a month. Like something that's like, how do you get that from Scripture? Well, you get it from here, and you piece it here. And I just wanted it to be clear throughout the history of the church. People aren't arguing about these things. They're very simple. The first one, study Scripture. Study Scripture. Uh, how many times are we told in the Bible to read the Bible? Over and over. How many times do you see a Christian who, you know, good dude, good dude, not doing negative things, but if you ask him when the last time he really seriously read the Bible, he'd be like, eh. But I don't, I don't hurt people. I'm not a negative person. Yeah, but you're not a positive guy either. And the reason why that's a problem is not because Pastor Lucas is a nerd and he wants people to read the Bible more. You'll understand my sermons more, then I can get nerdier. It has nothing to do with me, okay? What it has to do with is, is it clear in Scripture that we're supposed to be students of Scripture? I think the answer is, yeah. We looked at Psalm 1 when we looked at that. What is the blessed person like? The blessed person meditates on God's law day and night. How do we disciple people? Teach them Christ's commandments. That's what Jesus said. Baptize them and then teach them. Huddle together. I don't spend a whole ton of time on all of these. We still have these up on our, on our website. I did a sermon on each of these. But studying scripture in that sharp huddle is the H getting together. So not just popping in and out of Sunday. You know, you come Sunday morning, there's a service, then you leave Sunday morning, but people aren't getting to know you. You're not getting to know people. I think of Galatians 6, 1 and 2, bear one another's burdens. How can I bear somebody's burdens? I don't even know what your burdens are. I don't even know who you are. And you're going to let me come underneath the burden with you if you don't know who I am. 
and Sunday morning only kind of attendance, it's difficult to build those kinds of relational bridges where we can really bear each other's weight. You think of James, confess sins to one another. What does that mean? Here's a mic. Let's just take a really long Sunday morning. Everybody take a turn and confess your sins. Do you think that's what James meant? Or do you think he meant together over your Starbucks before work in the morning? Texting each other maybe. But encouraging one another. Assist the church. God gives us spiritual gifts. Those spiritual gifts are meant to aid the church. So if you're a Christian and you don't have a clear way that you're contributing to the church, the reason why I say that's a problem is all the verses that make it clear. Everyone has a gift. Every single person has a gift. Now, some gifts are more obvious, but every single person has a gift, and God doesn't bestow a spiritual gift without the obligation to use that gift. Why? Because it's clear in Scripture. The purpose of spiritual gifts is to serve other people. That is the purpose of spiritual gifts. Assisting the church with your gifts, relaying the gospel. Man, this is my weakest one, but are we supposed to keep the gospel to ourselves? Is that okay, or are we supposed to share it? We're supposed to share it. Pray persistently. Pray persistently. All throughout Scripture, Jesus prayed. Jesus is perfect, perfect, and leaned on prayer to make it. Huh? If a perfect God-man needs to lean on prayer to make it, can a Christian say properly that he or she is a Christian but doesn't really pray? When's the last time you prayed? Oh, that 22nd one at dinner. I say the same things I always said since I was a kid. Should you pray before your meals? I think it's a good idea. But that's your, is that your prayer life, meal times? Is this sounding a little harsh? I, I'm trying to channel what Jesus is saying. Jesus didn't come like, hey, guys, let me cuddle you. You're dead, you know? And I don't think CFC is dead, but if we're alive, it's because we lean into these positive traits. And I love that I serve a church that isn't riddled with scandal and infighting and gossip and betrayal and there's the pro-Lucas faction and there's the anti-Lucas. My heart bleeds when I talk to some of my pastor friends. It's like, oh, why don't you guys do this? I can't. They'll kill me, you know? And I love that. But there's still ways that we can grow and lean into these positive things. Look at verse 3. We'll move through the rest of these pretty quickly here. The way to revive a dying church is through true works that keep with repentance. So you remember he said they need to wake up and strengthen the things that are about to die because their works are incomplete. Verse 3, remember then what you received and heard. That, that means they were taught certain things. They were taught to do things. You're just not doing them anymore, okay? Keep it. Keep those things you've been taught to do and repent. Repent for not having done them, okay? Repent for being prayerless or repent for not really regarding Scripture in your life the way you're supposed to. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Man, that's, that's really tough. Let me just explain it really quickly. That imagery of Jesus coming like a thief usually means the, the return of Jesus Christ, okay? Uh, that, that he pounces on the world in judgment and it's over. You had your chance. 
But you remember how before in some of these other letters we saw how Jesus saying, I'm going to come against you in judgment, not in the end of time, but in a specific one specific to a church. And I talked about how we saw that in 1 Corinthians, again, that that messed up church in Corinth uh, where they were getting judged. I think what Jesus means here is not, I'm going to come as a thief because one church is getting it wrong. I'm going to bring an end to the whole world's timeline. I think what he's saying is in the same, the same judge that comes like a thief at the end is the same judge. I'll come to you right now. I'm not going to just wait till the end. I'll do it right now. But he doesn't want to. What does he want? He wants them to change. He wants them to repent so that he doesn't have to do that. And he's giving them the warning so that it'll help wake them up. I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. They haven't soiled their garments. How? Well, because they they do do the positive things that they're supposed to do. They do the complete works that they're supposed to do. You have a few names in Sardis, who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. That's purity that we get from Jesus Christ. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. How do you get your name in the book of life? How do you get a white garment? It's not by performing so well. And I need to make this clear, because up until this point, what am I emphasizing? Work, 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 work. But other churches are like, well, we get our white clothing in Jesus, not by works. So go do whatever you want. But does that sound like what Jesus is saying? If you are in Christ and you're wearing my holy clothes, if that's true of you, your life looks like something. I I don't care if you say you're a basketball player. If we go out to the court and you take 50 shots and you miss the whole backboard every 50, I don't think you're a basketball player. You can call yourself whatever you want. That's what Scripture emphasizes. It's not coming to God through works. It's understanding that if you've come to God through real repentance, real repentance looks like something. And it's not just not doing the negatives. It's also doing the positive things that we're supposed to be doing. That's what a true person who repents looks like. A person that wears white garments, walking with Christ, is worthy of life. Their name is in the book of life. It's not because they earned their way there. It's because they've clung to Christ. And Christ has transformed them in a way where it's pouring out through their lives in positive ways. So the person who is in abject sin, abject sin, all of us would be like, I can't believe you, you do that. The abuser, the rapist, okay, just put whatever you can in that category of, oh, that person is not in the book of life. They haven't changed, they haven't repented. And then the person that is a good citizen, pays his taxes, hasn't done anything negative, hasn't divorced his wife. Is it a healthy marriage, a positive marriage? No, but it hasn't divorced. I don't do the negative. Does he cheat on his wife? No, but does he love her? Nah. The positive works aren't there. He's not in either. That should put a little lump in our throats because it's so easy for us to look at the tax collector and go, I'm good. And Jesus said, don't look at the tax collector. Look at the bronze feet of your holy Savior, Jesus Christ, and do what he says do. Stop playing around. 
that timeline will come to an end. And before that timeline comes to a total end, I'll step in and judge in various ways to arrest your attention. And like I told you before, you don't want Jesus to wake you up. You want to wake up in the terms he's laying out here without him throwing you on a sick bed to get you to think about life in a different way. Don't, don't wait for some disease. Don't wait for a, a close call, an accident. You wake up in a hospital. You're like, okay, for real now? Okay, I'll follow you now. Do it now. Dodge the pain and serve him now because he's worthy of it. And what does he give you? It's not just a bunch of don'ts. Don't do this. Don't do that. It Really, it's a bunch of do's that he empowers you to do. And as you focus on the do's, the don'ts fall into place. So true workers conquer all the way to the end. That's the promise he holds out. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. Not the one who conquers the politicians, conquers the culture, conquers the world, conquers the schools. The one who conquers by reading the Bible, praying, assisting the church with spiritual good is very basic. But that's true conquering. And I will never blot his or her name out of the book of life. God writes it in there and it's in there spend more time on that next week he says i will confess his name before my father and before his angels can you imagine that jesus putting his arm around you and going look father god look angels you angels with wings and you're able to fly around and be invisible and be visible and the superlative strength that humans don't have this is a conqueror look at what i did for god's glory through this puny thing That's what Jesus wants to do. He wants to show you off. He wants you to make it to the end. And he equips you with what you need to do it by making clear in his word what we're supposed to do, what our lives are supposed to look like. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Churches, plural. Why? Because this is not just a problem that Sardis has to deal with. This is something, this is a prescription that all churches everywhere have to take. All churches everywhere. This is what makes church revival so difficult. Uh, it was something like three years into my pastorate here, I remember asking the advice of a church guy who owned like a, he was part of, the head of a church planting organization where they would plant churches, not five stone churches. And I wasn't thinking of running with him. I just was asking for advice. How do you revive a church? He was like, well, what we typically do with a small struggling church is not try to revive it, but we break it up into two or three or four smaller churches and start three or four new ones. I was like, really? Break it up and do four new churches instead of trying to re- revive the original church? Why? Why? I'll never forget what he said. It's always easier to give birth than to raise the dead. Does that analogy hit? You can grind for 15, 20 years trying to turn a church around. But if you just broke it up and started something new, new things tend to have new rules, new cultures, and you can just go with it. But a new pastor coming into an old church is pushing up against old ways of doing things. That's not how we do things here. And what he was saying was basically, the pastor in your situation, Lucas, is it's an uphill battle that's not winnable can't really revive a church that takes a miracle actually and when we hear that it sounds outlandish and obviously we didn't do that here i didn't even think to do that here 
because it did sound outlandish to me. But think about how difficult church revitalization is. For a church to really turn around and be a vital, lively church that it's supposed to be. You need to have a remnant. You need to have at least a core group of people who don't play around. Jesus says do, I do it. Jesus says don't, I don't do that. At least a core group of people that aren't here to play church. At least a core group of people that are the remnant. So that even if everyone else is dead on the vine, Jesus can say, there's a few white garments still there. Remember Abraham begging, God, what if there's at least this many righteous people? Would you destroy the city? No, for this few righteous people, I won't destroy the city. And God ended up destroying the city because besides Abraham and Lot, there wasn't anybody else. You have to at least have a remnant of true workers, white garment workers. Then you need to have uh, discipline of false teaching, which includes any misbehaviors that are going around. So think of a young pastor coming into a church, and there are some things that have been excused, and everyone gives a pass. And then the new guy comes in, and he's like, I don't give a pass to that. Two or three times in my 15 years here, I've essentially, one time, literally told Tina, get ready to pack your boxes. Because I'm going to drop this gauntlet on the floor and the church isn't going to go for it. They're not going to go for it. Why should all of this change when the easy move, the easiest move, is fire the pastor? That's the easy move. Just Let's just get a guy in here that's just going to play ball, man. None of this, change this, change that. You notice I'm still here, right? It's God's testament to a remnant of people who, even though not all of my ideas have been great ideas, we, we stick through it together because there's, there's a remnant. And I think that's what that one guy was missing. Small church, break them up. Crunch the numbers. No, no, no. What's Jesus' prescription? Identify a remnant. Is there a remnant that you can work with there? Work with them. And they'll work with you. But you need that remnant to be bold enough to stick with it because most of the time when people are dead, they don't welcome discipline. The people that need discipline, they don't welcome discipline. And then when you try to bring that discipline, they'll either get you fired or they'll leave. There's the the tipping point. If there's not enough of a bold remnant to stick with the the healthy things that the healthy people want to do, They're outnumbered and back down in front of the crowd or the majority of dead people who want to continue unhealthy things. That's when church revitalization things don't work. Has it worked here? I think so. Is it working here? I think so. Why? Because it's not just a weak, cowardly remnant, but a strong remnant that's willing to make the bold moves and go where we're supposed to go. I remember sitting with the seniors of our church because I was nervous. Do they feel like this young dude's coming in here just changing everything, changing the church? We read the first chapter together. We just sat there. We read the first chapter of a book called Who Stole My Church? That's the name of the book. And I remember just asking, like, do you guys feel like that? And uh, I don't know if you remember this, Al, or those that were there, Renata. Uh, the, The consensus was, hey, We've had our generation, and we've brought the church to this point, and we want to pass the torch. You guys do it now. 
you guys do it now. So then I brought that back to the elders. And they're like, oh, oh, yeah? I'm like, yeah, let's go, man. <laughs> this church isn't dead. This church wants to move. This church wants to respond. If you can show from Scripture that this is what the Lord wants, the, the church wants it. That's a church that's alive. It doesn't matter how many cars are in the parking lot, how many people are in the seats. A live church responds to the commands of Jesus Christ. At CFC, I think we've witnessed a very rare thing. But it's a God thing. It's a God thing. I appreciate how our church hasn't had mounting difficulties with the negative, obvious things that can get a church in trouble. I also appreciate many good works. Gathering together faithfully. Our growth groups are growing. We're seeing baptisms happening. Praise God. This is all awesome stuff. But I want us to continue in a few areas. I want us to continue with evangelism. I don't want the, the whole group to just depend on two or three people doing the evangelism when that's a charge that's given to everybody. Let's help each other out. Are you scared? So am I. I do not like going, hey, by the way, let me talk to you about why you need Jesus Christ. And as soon as you say it, it's like, oh, this guy. I'd rather just get through the workout or the discussion or whatever situation I'm in. And I want us to lead into uh, learning together beyond just growth group. You see these seven letters. You see the emphasis on false teaching versus positive doctrine. Churches should be about doctrine building, and that's why we're bringing the CFC courses back. I know some of you are like, oh, Sunday night. You know, I, I get it. I get it. It is the Lord's day, though, not the Lord's morning. But if we can little by little start making the life changes it takes to attend things like that, to build up. You might not go home that night like, oh, my goodness, my life has changed. You might be like, okay, that's a lot of information. But over time, it keeps laying mortar down to build more bricks in your spiritual life so that when the unforeseen thing hits, you have strength and vitality. Lastly, I want us to continue to lean into prayer. There was a season where I was very discouraged in prayer in our church, and we used to have it once a month, and I just came to the elders once. They didn't believe me at first. I remember, you remember Andy was like, I was like, let's not do prayer meetings anymore. They were like, what? You might right now be like, what? I was like, it's like four people, man. You know what I'm saying? It, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure at that point if the church was going to make it. I was reading a book called, uh, and I'll close with this, uh, Revitalized by Andy Davis. Don't pick it up yet because I didn't finish it, so I don't know if, it's, if I'm commending it or not. But anyway, remember one part, he was talking about one of the ways that you can discern the remnant in a congregation is the prayer service. Because you can't just focus on the do's or, or the don'ts, but you focus on the do's. And one of the clear do's in Scripture is churches gathering together to pray. Private prayer life, yes. Corporate prayer life, also, as you read through Scripture. And there's something about prayer services that is just, it runs against the grain of a weak, anorexic, shriveled version of Christianity that only wants to come and receive. Give me a sermon, give me songs, give me this, give me a show, give me a skit, let me see a dance, and then I'll go home and tell my family, church was really great today. Prayer service asks of you. Come over here and do what? Pray. 
How much of it is just sitting in silence? We're waiting for the next person to pray. I'm not going to be like, hurry up! You know, somebody's done praying. There's some time of silence. Someone else is praying. It's just not consumer-friendly. But for those who recognize, man, if we do not pray, we will not survive. Those are the kinds of people that tend to show up. I know some of you have scheduling conflicts. I'm not just laying a, a, a quick, you know, I don't sit there with a pad and, and take attendance and everybody else is on my blacklist. But you do want to start developing a pattern where you show up maybe a little bit earlier on Sunday mornings, pray with us in the morning for 15 minutes. I'm often late, so it's less than 15 minutes. TBH. want to get better about that. But a church that prays is a church that stays. And so these are the kinds of things that you look at. He doesn't say it right here, but he's banking on your knowledge of the whole Bible to know what it looks like. A brimming, a life, a church brimming with life of Christ demonstrates true repentance through works. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to you for your grace, even in a hard passage, even where uh, you crack the whip a little bit, it's grace because you want us to wake up. Uh, you want us to revive. And even though this church as a whole may not need wholesale revival like other churches, uh, we do want to continue. We want to praise you for all the benefits, all the things that we've seen in this church that are exciting. Um, I thank you for your faithfulness, uh, proven over and over again in the life of this church. Um, five decades of you showing one, once again and over again uh, that you are to be relied on and when you're relied on you make a way you move things forward strengthen us Father and as we close in this song would you allow each of us to renew our commitment uh, take a look at our lives and see if there are some basic core Christian things positive traits that maybe are just missing we just, we're just not doing them Help us, Lord, energize us to live into those more and more. And may we encourage one another uh, to strengthen up in those places where we're weak. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and we'll close in a song.